Welcome to Invisible Arts with Richard Gibbs, brought to you by Armory of Harmony. Fame. I have never been famous, nor do I have any desire to be famous. I have spent most of my career being fame-adjacent. To me, that's the sweet spot. I sit at the same tables, eating the same food, next to my famous friends, but no one stops me from my next bite by asking for my autograph. It does, of course, feel good to be recognized. I mean, don't you know who I think I am? was in Boingo, we performed a few times at a mid-sized theater called Perkins Palace in Pasadena. While I was in the band, I could usually get complimentary tickets for prime seats to shows all around LA, as we were a hot ticket ourselves. One of my favorites, Laurie Anderson, was performing at Perkins Palace, and I called ahead and arranged for a handful of tickets to take some friends who were visiting from out of town. I really wanted to impress them. We get to the box office, and I am handed the envelope full of tickets for what I'm sure are going to be the best seats in the house. I don't even check them. We walk into the theater, and with great confidence in amazing seat locations, I hand the tickets to the usher, who, strangely enough, turns out to be a Kiwi. He points up to the back of the theater. Up there, last row. Nosebleeds. I start to protest. There must be some mistake. He looked again at the tickets. Nope. Last row. Mind you, the place was not even close to being sold out. There were to be rows and rows of empty seats in front of us. I looked at my friend Carson and said, No worries. We'll just wait until the show starts and move much closer. But Carson decided to push it. He asked the usher, pointing at me over my objections. Don't you know who this is? The usher peers at me with his flashlight. No. But he does look sort of familiar. I'm thinking, well, maybe Carson's tactic will bear fruit after all. Suddenly, the guy snaps his fingers. I've got it. You're Neil Sean, the guitarist in Journey, right? I smile, shake my head no, and turn to move up the aisle. Carson is undaunted. He tells the usher, No, he isn't Neil Sean. The usher says, Well, he looks like him. 
Carson keeps at it. Do you know who people think he really looks like? No, says the usher. People think he looks like Richard Gibbs, the keyboardist in Oingo Boingo. I turn back halfway to face the guy. He looks long and hard at my face. Well, you don't know me. Nah, I've seen them a bunch of times. Doesn't look anything like him. Who do you want to be today? Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be today? Do you want to be just like someone on TV? Just like somebody on TV! Everybody wants to be treated well. One shouldn't have to be famous to be treated like a star. I mean, how great would the world be if we all felt treasured and revered? My studio, Woodshed Recording, is fortunate to have incredible clientele. People like Barbara Streisand, the guys in U2, Chance the Rapper, Pink, and Lady Gaga are used to a certain level of service. We wanted our service to be as unique and elite as the building and the ocean views. Four-star hotel concierge-level service. I cold-called the world-famous Beverly Wilshire Hotel. You've seen it featured in many movies, most famously in Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty Woman, look my way. Pretty Woman, say you'll stay. Hey, I hope you. Hi. Hello. Do you remember me? No, I'm sorry. I was in here yesterday. You wouldn't wait on me? Oh. You work on commission, right? Uh, yes. Big mistake. Big. Huge. I have to go shopping now. Pretty woman, don't walk on by. Pretty woman, don't make me cry. I asked to speak to the concierge. I hit a hole in one. The woman who picked up, Kalindra Ashley, could not have been more enthusiastic and helpful. And, as it turned out, she was the president of the Los Angeles Concierge Association. She came out and worked with our staff to show them all of the niceties that four-star concierge service entails. She told us a story of how she came up with a plan to treat a nice family of guests from out of town like true celebrities for a night. The night of the MTV Movie Awards, they had had this joke throughout their stay that they wanted the celebrity treatment even though they weren't officially celebrities. So on the day of the event, security goes and escorts them down to the lobby. And I had a friend who was a photographer who was just hiding behind some of the plants. And as they came out of the elevator, he started snapping photos of them. And, you know, I apologized and then walked them out to the front drive where probably about 10 to 15 of our hotel staff had gathered. And we had signs saying their names and everybody started cheering and screaming. And we had the the red velvet rope up and we're all just jumping and asking for autographs for them as they walked out and got into their roles and headed off to the show for the evening. You know, I think really at the end of the day, people just want to be thought of. Part of the allure, I think, of being famous and being a celebrity is you have this adoration of your fans that secretly that's what, you know, people are just looking for that affirmation. I was in an airport bookstore, killing time while waiting for a connecting flight. After leaving Boingo, I had let my naturally curly brown hair grow quite long. A woman walked up to me. 
Could I have your autograph? I was surprised for several reasons. Being the keyboardist, and hence often hidden behind stacks of keyboards, I was usually the last one recognized in Boingo, even when I was in the band, and it had been many years since those days. But most particularly, this woman just didn't seem to fit the demographic of a Boingo fan. So I smiled and said, sure. She handed me a pen and a piece of paper and said, Thanks, Kenny. Pardon me? She said, Thank you. I asked her who she thought I was. She said, Of course. I'd recognize you anywhere. You're Kenny G. I laughed and said, Sorry, you've got the wrong guy. And I was a little embarrassed that I'd allowed myself to think someone really wanted my autograph. But she insisted, Look, I know you're Kenny G. No, ma'am. Really, I'm not. She would not let it go. I started to walk away, but she began to follow me. At that point, a large security guard who had overheard the exchange, imagine Terry Crews in a powder blue shirt with a badge, intervened. He said, Ma'am, ma'am, he is not Kenny G. Please leave the man alone. Yes, he is, the woman insisted one more time, but finally relented and left. Thanks, I said to the guard. He said, No problem. I know you're Kenny G. I just figured you wanted your privacy, right? So glad to be of service, Mr. G. Carry on. By the way, love your stuff. And walked away. Recently, I actually met Kenny and told him that story. I think we were both equally horrified. He still looks exactly the same as he did back then, by the way. Good looking guy. Years later, my film scoring career was beginning to gather momentum. One of the early films I scored was a fun romp called Bingo. Basically, the story of the world's smartest mutt and the boy he adopted as his own. Back in the 60s, it would have been a sweet Disney comedy for kids, but the concept was updated with a sort of Coen Brothers irreverence. I was actually brought in to rescore the movie. The director and original composer had gone the route of using the bingo song as the theme of the score throughout. You know, B-I-N-G-O, B-I-N-G-O, B. That song. The producers weren't happy with the score, so I got the call. I saw it in a different light. You know how artists become victims of their biggest hit? They're doomed to play it over and over ad nauseum. I mean, may we all be so lucky, but still. I figured Bingo was sick and tired of hearing Yahoo sing that song every time he met someone new. He was, after all, a very sophisticated dog. I went for more of an Almond Brothers meets yodeling and whistling vibe. Source music is the music in a movie that has a visual or implied source on the screen, as opposed to the dramatic score that has no source and is there to enhance the emotion of the film. 
The source music could be coming from a wedding band, a nightclub, maybe a car radio. I found moments in the movie where Bingo found himself in a place where there might be some Muzak playing and had fun arranging the Bingo song in the most irritating ways possible. It really worked when he growled as if to say, Not that damn song again. Bingo hated his fame. Months after it was released, I was in New York City for some meetings and found myself with an hour to kill around lunchtime in Times Square. Back then, Times Square was pretty dicey. It was populated with self-medicated, down-on-their-luck people living rough on the street, and half of the storefronts were porno palaces. did have a few movie theaters. Lo and behold, Bingo was on the marquee of one. I wandered over. The poster was displayed out front. A young boy, about eight or nine, was standing in front of it, examining it carefully. I was standing a few steps behind him. Have you seen this movie? I asked. He turned and looked at me and slowly shook his head. It's pretty good, I said. I think you might like it. Check this out. I leaned in a little, long hair and all, and pointed up my name in the credit block on the poster. See that? That's me. I wrote the music. His mom, who had been close by the whole time, suddenly moved in between me and her son. She spun him around and with a quick concerned glance back at me said, Come on, Kevin. Let's go. Now. Film composers just aren't famous. Obviously, Mom thought I was just another loon in Times Square. What means the most to me, and to most musicians, at every level, is the recognition of peers. Peter Gabriel, a musical hero of mine, was in my studio for an event. I held up my hand to introduce myself. He said, I know who you are. I googled you. I think I might want that on my tombstone. Here lies Richard Gibbs, beloved husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Googled by Peter Gabriel. The heat your eyes I am complete in your eyes I see the door in your
In the year 2000, Corns, Jonathan Davis, and I were hired to write the songs and score for the movie Queen of the Dam. Jonathan and I toured a handful of studios in Los Angeles looking for the right fit. Woodshed recording was not built yet. My hair was now in long, thick dreadlocks. No mistaking me for Kenny G or Neil Sean. We were being given the tour of the legendary Village Recorder by the owner, Jeff Greenberg. John's bodyguard, Loke, was with us. Loke was definitely not someone you would want to trifle with. Shaved head, as wide as he was tall, and built like the boxer he was. Envision a shorter Mexican Mike Tyson. What little neck he had was emblazoned with the word Hellbound, tattooed and wrapped around it in four-inch high gothic script. We were threading our way between an occupied control room couch and the recording console in single file. Jeff in front, Jonathan, me, and Loke in protective caboose duty. Suddenly a magazine came flying at my head from the couch, narrowly missing me. I turned to face my aggressor, a middle-aged gent sunken down on the couch. Loke was fully ready to pounce, just waiting for a word from me or any escalation of violence. The guy was instantly horrified at his mistake. I'm so sorry, he said. I thought you were someone else. Sorry, sorry. His emphatic apology probably saved him from certain severe damage via Loke's fists. We continued on out into the main live room. The couch potato chased after us, still apologizing. He said I thought I was his friend. Don was. Don was is a highly successful and supremely respected record producer who happens to have a strong schnoz like me and dreadlocks. So I understood, laughed a little, and held up my hand and introduced myself. He introduced himself. I'm Hal Wilner, he said. Oh my God, you are my favorite producer. Stay Awake will always be in my top 10 list. Sleep the room 
Stay Awake, Hal had created an amazing collection of songs from animated Disney movies, each tune radically reimagined by a different artist. James Taylor, Tom Waits, Ema Sumac, the NRBQ, Sun Ra and his orchestra, many, many others. An absolute masterpiece. I fawned over him. The second star to the right shines with a light so rare. Yeah, yeah. And if it's never land you need, it's light lead you there. November 5th, 2018. Hal was our special guest for the Composer's Breakfast Club. That date is burned in my memory because that Friday, November 9th, our home burned to the ground in the Woolsey Fire, yet Woodshed Recording in our backyard was unscathed. Earlier this year, we lost Hal Wilner to COVID-19. He was never walk up on the street famous. He was better. His work was mythically glorious. Work I would recognize anywhere. That's the fame I aspire to. You can walk up and ask for my autograph anytime. But first, you need to know who I am. Invisible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in Malibu, California. I'm Jonathan Davis. <laughs>